Hi, this is Malia Warner. Welcome to the summer series of Power Principles, the podcast. Last week was an introduction. For today's episode, I present you with chapter one. Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 1 The road I'm traveling stretches endlessly ahead across the Sonoran Desert, winding through a vast panorama of monotony. Each new mile looks exactly like the last. Faster, I urge the engine forward, pressing my foot deeper into the gas pedal of my husband's car. I'm supposed to be traveling to the Arizona Music Teachers Annual Convention in Tucson, but I haven't seen another vehicle in at least 30 minutes. This can't be I-10. There should be more traffic on a major interstate. The red speedometer needle trembles over 90 miles per hour. Still, the barren scenery passes too slowly. I might as well be a pioneer driving an old wagon pulled by a pair of sauntering mules. The summer heat turns the car into a furnace. I reach over to crank up the air conditioner, but it is already blasting at full power in a futile effort to keep me and my enlarged belly from overheating. So why is it getting hotter in this car? A tightening pinch begins in my back and wraps around to my front. The contraction pulls and twists, causing me to grab my stomach. I grit my teeth and grip the steering wheel to keep from swerving. Breathe, I remind myself, noticing that I've only covered seven miles since the last contraction. I squeeze my eyes shut tight against the pain, then reopen a narrow slit of vision, just enough to make sure my car tires stay on the road. I wince and wait. Two full minutes pass on the digital clock before the pressure releases. Tears burn in the corner of my eyes. Please, baby, hold on a little longer. When the contractions got harder as I approached Phoenix, I started questioning whether I should turn around or keep driving. As usual, I called on Laya for advice. The contractions are coming faster and lasting longer, I told her. I'm thinking I need to turn around and go back home. Laya's voice was confident. You asked me to remind you that this happens to you every pregnancy. Well, this is me reminding you. These contractions will stop. Keep driving. You don't want a repeat of what happened when Tanner was born. I cringed at the memory of my last childbirth. Laya was right. I do not want a repeat of Tanner's birth. So 30 minutes later, I'm still driving, and Laya's voice chirps continuously through speakerphone from the passenger seat next to me. She rambles on about a gamut of topics from the latest episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show to what I think Aaron will give me for my 31st birthday next month. While Laya chatters, I feel another round of tightening begin low in my abdomen and wind like a pair of boa constrictors snaking their way up around my torso in opposite directions and compressing with all their might. I grimace and hold my breath, forgetting to check the clock. Laya chatters casually as if we're having one of our myriad daily conversations, nothing in her voice hinting worry about the possibility of me delivering a baby alone in the middle of the desert. Laya likes to talk, and right now I need her gift of distraction, as if my very existence depends on the presence of her incessant background noise. I continue to hold my breath, which is not what you're supposed to do during contractions, while Laya states all the reasons why Aaron owes me an extra good birthday present this year, since he didn't get me a different gift after I made him return the digital camera he tried to give me last year. It's too much money to spend on me, I had told him. 
It seems ages pass before the constrictors give their last, strongest squeeze, then recoil, gradually releasing the pressure. I exhale in relief. Again, I question the decision to drive forward, but Laia is unwavering. She can talk for hours without pausing. Soon she scoops me back into her dialogue and I get lost again in her rhetoric. The miles pass and never once does it occur to me that if I disconnect Laia's voice, I might find the solution to my own dilemma hiding in the rare compartment of silence, like finding treasure in the pocket of a little worn wool winter coat. In the nearly 30 years of our inseparable connection, I've never considered asking her to be quiet, even for a moment. I don't know what I would do without her. We've been confident for so long that I can hardly boil water without consulting her about which pot to use. As the miles pass on slowly, Laia starts talking about everything that went wrong with Tanner's birth, one of our favorite topics to revisit. I can pass hours rehashing all the things I did wrong when Tanner was born. When I think of his birth, I feel a brief moment of euphoria, that thrill of meeting my own baby for the first time. But the euphoria is soon replaced with regret and longing for a do-over. This time, I want to get it all right. I want only the euphoria. The angst of regret morphs into a different but familiar sensation, the twisting and contorting of another contraction. I take my foot off the gas pedal and push against the car floor, forcing my back against the driver's seat for support. I try to keep hold of the steering wheel, but when I can't hold on any longer, my hands release the wheel and grab my stomach, trying to guard my womb against the tsunami of agony while my car weaves across both lanes of traffic. I squirm and push my feet harder into the floor and stretch my back deeper into the seat, hoping the lengthening will create space and prevent the crushing of my kidneys, liver, and other organs. The pinching escalates and I scream, a terrible whining sound like the siren of an emergency vehicle. The wail echoes against the silence of the desert. Did I make that noise? I clamp my mouth shut and hold my breath. The contraction rings stronger, harder. It's happening. I spread my legs, anticipating the gush of water which will deluge the front seat. Aaron's nose can track a lost sippy cup the moment the milk turns sour. I will never be able to clean the potent scent of amniotic fluid out of his car. The monster contraction begins to release, but another is climaxing before the first recedes, followed by yet another. Minutes have clicked past on the clock. The car is barely crawling at 10 miles per hour. Three contractions in a row without a break. This is what happens before the baby drops, right? I rack my memory of previous labors. How did those last hard contractions feel right before the baby crowned? Certainly they weren't harder than these. Oh, I can't be sure. Once those last hard contractions hit, there's hardly time to think. It happens fast, like a strike of lightning. I reach for the phone to call Aaron. Laia seems to sense my finger approaching the disconnect button and calls out, No! Her voice startles me now, and, shaking, I drop the phone which lands somewhere under my seat. Still, I can hear Laia's voice barreling through me from the floor. Don't call Aaron. This is exactly what you did with Tanner. My mind is dizzy. And with Kate, too, Laia adds. The contractions were exactly like this when you went to the hospital with Kate and with Tanner. You asked me to help you remember. Laia's voice is persuasive. I remember the humiliation and awkwardness of showing up to labor and delivery multiple times at inhumane hours, my body tormented with raging contractions, only to be sent back home. I remember how embarrassing it felt as a woman to not know the right time to go to the hospital. 
this pregnancy, I have sworn I will not go to the hospital until I am 100,000% certain that I am in real, indisputable, does not require Pitocin or water breaking labor. For the past nine months, I've been mentally gearing myself up to make it through these last grueling weeks of pregnancy. You can do this, Laya encourages. I can do this. I reach down to find my phone, shifting my belly to the side of the steering wheel and pat around until my hand finds my flip phone and I restore Laya to her rightful place in the navigator's seat next to me. You can't call Aaron, Laya's voice resumes from the passenger seat. Not after what happened last night. For a few moments, my body is calm, and I'm relieved that Laya talked me out of calling Aaron. Yesterday, while I packed my suitcase, Aaron tried to talk me out of coming. We argued about the wisdom of me spending the weekend four hours away from home and hospital this close to my due date. I've hardly had any contractions today, I told him. I'll be fine. You had tons of contractions on Tuesday, remember? You almost went to the hospital. Aaron paced around the bedroom. How many weeks along are you? He asked. 37. I lowered my head and my voice with the answer. Technically, I'm 37 and one half weeks, but I didn't mention the one half to Aaron. Weren't Danny, Kate, and Tanner all born at 37 weeks? Aaron pressed. I nodded slightly. Technically, Kate was born at 36 weeks, but I didn't see fit to remind Aaron of that fact either. Aaron stormed over and closed the suitcase lid, nearly smashing my fingers and forcing me to look at him. Can you please explain how this is a good idea to go on a trip by yourself when every other baby has been born at 37 weeks? Based on your track record, the baby is coming this weekend. Aaron flung his arms. Hmm? Tell me how you think this is a good idea. He bounced his leg waiting for me to answer. When I was 14, I won first place in my local Farm Bureau talent find. The MC pinned a blue ribbon on my dress, one of those ruffled county fair style ribbons, the same kind that gets taped to the sweepstakes winning bottle of peach preserves or tied around the horn of the grand champion bull. Then he shook my hand while giving me a trophy and a $100 savings bond. I also got my picture in the newspaper. The town reporter asked everyone to move aside while he snapped photos of me with my ribbon, my trophy, and my savings bond. After the reporter double-checked how to spell my name, M-A-L-E-A-H, one of the judges pulled me away from my circle of congratulators. It wasn't even a competition tonight, he said, still holding my elbow and whispering. The second-place winner didn't touch the bottom of your shoes. I stared at this stranger who had come from a larger city to judge our small-town competition. Why was he going out of his way to tell me this? You have a special touch for Chopin. The audience was in the palm of your hand. No one breathed until you played the very last note. My heart pounded. I hope you'll never stop playing. You were absolutely dazzling. He extended his hand, and I hoped he wouldn't notice the sweat on my palm as he shook my hand with gusto. Congratulations on tonight. You deserved it. And with that, he let go of my hand and walked out of the building. Who was that? My mother asked, coming over and straightening the ribbon on my dress. One of the judges, I said. What did he say? He liked my performance. The next Tuesday morning, Laya looked over my shoulder at the picture of me on the front page of the newspaper. Your hair looked so pretty, she said. I couldn't help but notice how the dress I'd worn made my 14-year-old figure look more curvy than usual. 
On that morning, like every other Tuesday morning across Emory County, Utah, farmers and miners and teachers were picking up their newspapers, and they were all looking at me. I had wowed the judges. I had finished first place. The entire audience had stood on their feet and applauded. For me, I could not stop smiling. Aaron was not smiling, and neither was I. His leg bouncing picked up intensity while he waited for me to answer. I took a deep breath, gearing up to, once again, try to explain what I desperately needed Aaron to understand. The only reason Kate and Tanner were born at 37 weeks is because I went to the hospital three weeks too early. Any hospital will admit a woman who is 37 weeks and contracting. Both times the doctor insisted on giving me Pitocin or breaking my water to speed up labor. Ever since what happened when Tanner was born, I've wondered how far I can make it if I don't panic and go to the hospital too soon. Aaron looked at me as if I had birdseed for brains. He can't understand why in the world going full term is important to me. Despite being born three weeks early, each of our babies have been healthy with fully developed lungs and hungry tummies, no premature birth complications, no oxygen machines, no feeding tubes, no extended hospital stays. As far as Aaron is concerned, going to the hospital at 37 weeks and getting a shot of Pitocin is as sensible a way to have a baby as hooking up jumper cables to start a car battery. But it isn't for me. What if this is our last baby? I asked, trying to appeal to Aaron's sympathy. I might never get another chance to see if I can carry a pregnancy a full 40 weeks. I wanted Aaron to be impressed with me. I wanted him to still feel like he had married the most remarkable woman on earth. I wanted him to embrace me with loving amazement and whisper something to the effect of, how did I get so lucky to be married to you? Instead of marveling at my moxie, Aaron got even more fired up. If your water breaks, I will never make it to Tucson in time, and you will always resent me for not being there for the birth. Oh, so this is all about him. Laya had warned me to watch out for his ulterior motives. She would be quick to point out later how he revealed his true colors. Rather than being attentive to my feelings or well-being, Aaron was more concerned with saving his own neck in our relationship. My blood boiled with bitterness. If his feelings for me ran so shallow these days, then I couldn't care less if he was there for the birth or not. My water won't break, I said with words flat and blank as paper. Stay home. Aaron's voice was a blanket of exasperation. Still, it sounded more like a command than a plea. You don't have to go to the hospital this weekend, but don't go to Tucson either. If I stay home, I will have the baby this weekend. You know that, because everyone will pressure me to get to the hospital before it's too late. Who will pressure you? Everybody, you especially, and my sister, and my mother, and probably even your mother. No one can make you do anything you don't want to do. Aaron expelled an exasperated sigh. I had worn him down. He was close to surrendering. Now I regretted pushing so hard. I had gotten so caught up in the fight that I had forgotten the cost of winning. The point of the argument wasn't to win, but to test Aaron's feelings about me. So I had lost on all sides. It was true. Aaron no longer admired me and would not be coming to my rescue. So tomorrow I would be driving to Tucson alone. I was devastated to know, for certain, that Aaron wouldn't fight for me anymore the way he used to when we were dating. 
I used to fill him with the thrill of the chase, but now I only fill him with agitation. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for joining me today. I will meet you back here next week for another chapter, or maybe chapters, of Lies of the Magpie. Have a great week, everybody.